today the prayer focus is also sort of going to double as the introduction uh, for my sermon. So we're in uh, the end of John chapter 17, the final six verses in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. That's what we looked at last week in verses 1 to 19. Sam walked us through that. Today we're going to look at verses 20 to 26. And here Jesus prays for his future followers. That includes uh, you and me. And the main thrust of Jesus' prayer in this section is for the unity of his followers, that they would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And so I think it's fitting for us to take some time and just to pray for the unity of God's people. And part of the reason I wanted to do this is because it is the focus of the passage and it makes sense to do it. If it is on Jesus' heart that this is what he cares about, it ought to be on our hearts as well. But part of the reason I wanted to do this was also just because we live in an increasingly polarized and fractured world. Uh, We see this everywhere. There is sharp disagreement over uh, many, many things. And actually, we see this in the church as well. And I think it's important for us just to pray for the unity of the church. So I probably spend uh, too much time on uh, things like Twitter. And one of the things I've observed over the past few years is just an increasing lack of unity and charity among those who claim to be Jesus' followers. One of Augustine's mottos was, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, uh, grace towards one another. And I think that's helpful. So it's, he's not suggesting, and I'm not suggesting unity at the expense of truth or anything like that, but I think it's important for us just to be aware of the fact that unity is a really big deal. Now, of paramount concern to me is the unity of our church, of Crossridge Church. I want us to be unified, but also, so I'm not trying to solve all of the the global church's issues and, and factions or anything like that, but I do think we ought to pray, and we ought to pray for the unity of God's people uh, in our church and also in sort of the big C church as well. So would you just join me in doing that this morning, and then we'll open God's Word together. Father, we do thank you for your grace We thank you that you have called us into a relationship with you, that uh, the way you've put it is that you've called us and adopted us into your family, the church. And Lord, we know that we have brothers and sisters seated all around us this morning. Uh, We have brothers and sisters who are scattered all over the world, people who uh, name your name and are part of your family. And we pray along with Jesus' prayer that there would be a oneness amongst your people, that where there's been divisions, uh, divisions over unnecessary things, that there would be restoration and healing. And we pray, Lord, in our own lives, if there's any of that, that we want to submit that to you and pray that you would unite us in Jesus, God. That's our prayer, that this would be a testimony to a watching world that we are, in fact, your children, brothers and sisters together. And so, Lord, would you make us one? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, as I said, uh, we're in John chapter 17. Hopefully you've got a Bible in front of you this morning. Uh, We're going to just read it. We're going to read John 17, verses 20 to 26. And here's what Jesus says. Here's what Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So as we think about these verses this morning, I want to simply make three observations from them. And the first one is that Jesus cares deeply about the unity of his followers. So the big takeaway from this passage is that unity is a big deal. Now, I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way of saying that, but sometimes we just need to hear a truth in its most basic form. Unity is a big deal. It's a big deal to Jesus. Listen to the way Jesus prayed for his disciples throughout this prayer. Firstly, go back to verse 11. And there he said, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in our passage, as Jesus prays for us, we see that same petition three times. I know I just read it, but listen again. In verse 21, Jesus prays that they all may be one. Then in verse 22, he prays that they may be one even as we are one. And then again in verse 23, he prays that they may become perfectly one or completely One, the unity or the oneness of his followers is a big deal to Jesus. Now, we're going to get into the basis of our unity and the reasons why unity is so important in a few minutes. But I think it's good to just begin at this place with a reminder that unity is important. Uh, Unity is a precious thing. It's a beautiful thing. The first passage that comes into my mind when I think about the unity that God desires for his people is from the Old Testament. It's Psalm 133. That psalm in its entirety says this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Unity is a beautiful thing. Now, you may recognize the first line of that psalm, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. If you have ever been stuck in the border lineup at the Peace Arch border crossing, you have seen that line because it is etched into the Peace Arch. Into the arch are etched these words, brothers dwelling together in unity. And those words are there. They were put there as a reminder that though we are two different countries, 
We share a fundamental unity, and that is a great thing. Unity is a beautiful thing. It's a precious thing, but it's also a fragile thing. And sometimes in the church, we are known more for our divisions than for our oneness or for our unity. And when I think about that, I'm reminded of this story. It's a fairly well-traveled story, but once I saw this guy on a bridge who was about to jump, and I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, well, are are you a Christian or are you a Jew? He said, well, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, well, I'm Protestant. I said, well, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. I said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. Then I said, die, you heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. You're supposed to laugh. It's okay. That joke was listed as number 44 on the list of the 75 funniest jokes of of all time in a 1999 issue of GQ magazine. So it's supposed to be funny. But I think we know it's funny and it's actually not funny, right? It's not funny when God's people are divided. It's never funny when church splits happen or where there's fractures in relationships among those who are in the church. Now, some of you have experienced those things, and they often lead to individual pain, and they often lead to the damage of the reputation of the church as a whole. Now, when you read through the letters of the New Testament, you will find that there's a consistent reminder about the importance of unity, that we are to keep it. So just think about the church in the city of Corinth, right? The recipients of those letters that we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The church in Corinth was a wild church. They had lots of problems in that church. Everything from sexual immorality to lawsuits among believers to those who just wanted ecstatic spiritual experiences. But it's interesting that when Paul writes to that church, the very first thing he addresses with them is the issue of unity. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. That's the thing Paul starts out with, the unity of the church. And the thing that motivated him to write this letter was the fact that there were divisions that existed in this church and they should not be there. Unity is a big deal. Or we could think about when Paul wrote to the church in the city of Philippi. In that letter, he included a little detail that helps us understand some of the background of what was happening in that church. It was a great church, but here's what he said in chapter 4. 
He said, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, Paul mentions these two women by name, and there was some conflict between them. And that was important enough to Paul to say, you know what, you need to come alongside them and help them work this out because the unity of the church, the oneness of God's people is a big deal. Now, in our passage, Jesus makes three petitions, as I said, that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. So Jesus cares deeply about the unity of his followers. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is the object and the source of our unity. So what exactly does that mean? Well, let me begin with the object part of that. Jesus is the object of our unity. Look again at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word or through their testimony. Now, Jesus is not praying just for his immediate disciples, but for all of his future disciples, including you and me. And part of what's interesting about that is that actually as he says this, there is actually a kind of unity that we have with his very first followers. Because we believe through the word of those first followers. So John Stott made this observation about Jesus' prayer. He said, it is first and foremost a prayer that there may be a historical continuity between the church of the first century and the church of subsequent centuries, that the church's faith may not change but remain recognizably the same, that the church of every age may merit the title apostolic because it is loyal to the teaching of the apostles. So just to kind of break that down a little bit, what this means. What this means is that if you had the ability to time travel, like if you had a DeLorean powered by 1.21 gigawatts, and you could travel all the way back to the first century, you would find a, a coherence and a consistency between your belief in Jesus and their belief in Jesus. Because it was based on the same word, the same teaching. In fact, that would be true of any generation that you could go to. The belief in Jesus is the same. This is why Jude could say this. When he wrote his letter, he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Jude refers to the faith. There is a set of beliefs and doctrines that constitute that faith, and they actually form the basis of our unity. These are things we are unified about. So we have unity because Jesus is the object of our faith. And I want to just press into that a little bit more because there's actually lots of different ways that we could try to build unity as a church. Right? You can find lots of expressions of unity outside the church. I mean, there's lots of you know, community projects and different things where people experience a degree of unity or oneness. Now, unity in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. 
There's a kind of unity that exists that's actually in opposition to God. So Psalm 2 begins like this. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his united. So rulers, nations, elites are sometimes and maybe even often united in their rebellion against God. That's not a good kind of unity. It's not a good kind of oneness. And even we regular folk are rebels against our creator as well. And sometimes we unite with others to form a kind of collective rebellion against against God. There's a unity in that, a oneness, but it's not a good one. The story of the Tower of Babel uh, illustrates this. That story begins like, the, like this. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of of the whole earth. These people were united, right? They had this project they wanted to do. It was sort of like, we want to build the kingdom of man. And if you know the story, you know that God came and he knocked that tower down. But why? I mean, what was the problem with that tower? What was the problem with that enterprise? Is God against cities? Is he against progress? Is he against skyscrapers? What problem could there be with the people who are united in language and purpose? And the problem was not that they were united, it's that they were united in the wrong pursuits. They were united in their opposition to God. So verse 4 really reveals the state of their hearts, where they say, Come, let us make a, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And then they say, Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, the people were united in their efforts to stay right where they were, not to be scattered or dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's the problem with that? Well, think back to the very first command that God gave to Adam and Eve. It says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then even after the flood, God issued virtually the same command to Noah and his descendants. He said, it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? These people say, we're not filling the earth. We're staying right here. We don't want to be scattered. They had a unity. It was a sort of tragic unity because they were united in their opposition to God. So our unity needs to be in the right place. And I would just say that even in the church sometimes, we try to build our unity on something other than Jesus. So mostly we think, well, if we're going to have unity, the way to get it is to build it on lines of affinity or commonality, things that we share in common. So we think, well, the best way for me to build community is to find a group of people who are just like me. They're from the same socioeconomic Status. They're the same, you know, age or the same stage of life. They've got the same interests. That's unity. That's oneness. And some churches build their whole model off of that type of thing. I mean, all the cool people, all the young people or, or whatever, that's who comes here. 
Now, I'm not bashing anyone when I say that. I'm not criticizing things like a young mom's group or men's sports ministry or anything like that. Those things have their place. They can be helpful. But the kind of unity that you find in those affinity groups is something you can find outside of the church. The kind of unity you find in those sorts of attractional churches that appeal to all the young adults or all the boomers is actually a demographic phenomenon, not a gospel phenomenon. The kind of unity that Jesus desires for us is a gospel-based unity. It's rooted in the same object. I'm sure I've told you this before, but the very first year that Ilona and I were married, uh, we were part of a young married small group or young married Bible study, and everyone in that group was just like us. No one had any kids, and it was you know, great on a social level. We, could, we had friends in that group, and we did some things together. But I remember coming home from one of those evenings and just saying to Ilona, you know that the crazy thing about this group is that most of these people know as little about marriage or even less about marriage than we do, right? I mean, we just kind of got together and, you know, pooled all our ignorance together. Now, I'm not saying that because, you know, it's bad to have a young marriage group or, or something like that. But that's not necessarily biblical oneness and unity, just everyone the same, uniformity. So we, we did that for a year, and then we joined just a regular run-of-the-mill small group. Everyone in that group was at least 10 years older than us, some more than that. And we learned so much from being part of that group. And I think they would tell you they loved having us there because we brought a different perspective. Now, I've been in lots of different small groups, uh, community groups over the years. And I think our staff would tell you that I often boast about the community group that I'm in uh, right now. And part of it is because I think it's a good expression of what biblical oneness or biblical unity looks like. Our group has people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, and their 70s. And if you take the kids that are connected to the people in that community group, we've got everything from newborns to toddlers to middle schoolers to teenagers to young adults. It's a great expression of unity, community. I know lots of you in your groups experience something similar, but what is the basis for the community in that community group? What's the basis of our unity? I like the way one writer expressed the kind of unity we experience in the church. He said this. He said, Our new society of the church is not a mutual admiration society, but a shared adoration society. Our affection for each other is derivative. It derives from our worship of God, a God who saved us, from a million different communities of this world to become his family, right? So we're not a mutual admiration society. We are a shared adoration society. We adore and worship Jesus. He's the object of our unity. And having our unity rooted in Jesus obliterates those things that might naturally divide us. So I think sometimes when we read the the letters of the New Testament or when we think about the church, the early church, we forget how much of a miracle the early church was. 
you know, there are lots of different ways that you could divide people in the first century. One of the biggest divisions ran along ethnic lines, especially the, the division between Jews and Gentiles, right? There was a, a, a natural hostility that existed between these groups. And there's a long history of conflict and interference. And yet, the early Christian congregations were filled with both Jews and Gentiles together, worshiping the same God. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul described in theological terms what had taken place. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this. He said, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God. In one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And what Paul says to a group of people who were divided over ethnic lines is you are part of the same family. There's not two groups of people. There is one group of people in Christ. That's our unity. But the divisions that existed between people in the first century went beyond ethnic differences. There were divisions based on class and socioeconomic status. So slavery was common in the Roman Empire in the first century and everywhere else for that matter. Scholars estimate that between 10 and 20% of people were slaves or bond servants in the Roman Empire during the first century. And the church brought these people together as well, the slaves and those who were free. Lots of passages speak to this, but here's two short ones. In Galatians chapter 3, we read, Here is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 is similar. It says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, But Christ is all and is in all. So how was that possible? How was it possible to break down all of those barriers? What was the basis of that kind of unity? Well, it's because, as I mentioned earlier, the church is not a mutual admiration society. It's a shared adoration society. We are united because Jesus is the common object of our faith. And that was true in the first century, it's true today, and it will be true for all eternity. Listen to this description of a scene in heaven from Revelation chapter 7. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's a shared adoration society. That's what the church is. Now, I say that Jesus is both the object and the source of our unity. So let's just talk about the source part for a few minutes. Let's return to our passage. Notice the repeated emphasis on the source of our unity. Verse 21 again. That they may all be one, Just as you, Father, are in me, 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, right? That's the source of our unity is that we are in the Father and in the Son. Or verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Or verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. What's the source of our unity? It's Jesus in us, us in Jesus. The unity we have because we are in Christ is a reflection of the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. So this is not a surface level unity. This is not tolerance. This is, a, this is not, well, you know, I love them in the Lord. It's not that, it's actually a deep unity that exists for us. The question is, how do we get that kind of unity? I'm going to give you the answer. And the answer is that we get this kind of unity, this kind of oneness with one another when we experience this kind of unity and this kind of oneness with Jesus. And you know how you grow the unity of the church? It's we grow in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus says that we experience this kind of unity when we are in him. And when the love with which the Father loved him is in us. Now, we've been in this section known as Jesus' farewell discourse for a long time already. The section that runs from chapter 13 to chapter 17. We started that back in October. So I don't expect you to remember everything that's been said But I just want to say this is part of a sustained dialogue and now prayer from Jesus. And so think back to chapter 15, where Jesus used the metaphor of a vine and branches. And he said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Unity is one of the fruits that we bear when we abide in. In Jesus, we can't do it apart from him. It's a supernatural unity. If we're not abiding in the vine, we won't be able to experience that fruit. Okay, so but but how? Something else that Jesus says in John 15 is that we're to abide in his love. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John 16, 27, which says that the Father himself loves you. And I would just say the love we are able to express to one another flows out of the love that we have experienced from God. That's how we produce that fruit. You know, one of the the real killers of unity in the church is a lack of forgiveness, right? You've wronged me in some way, and I just can't bring myself to forgive you. That will destroy unity. That will destroy oneness. So do you know what the cause of that is? Do you know what the remedy is for that? The reason for your lack of forgiveness towards another person or your inability to forgive another person is that you haven't properly understood what the Lord has forgiven you of. You haven't dwelt in that. You're not abiding in that forgiveness. And because you're not abiding in that forgiveness, you can't forgive others. 
This is why the New Testament so often frames these kind of imperatives like this. Ephesians 4 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Or Colossians 3, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. See, when we abide in Jesus, when we abide in the forgiveness that we've experienced from Him, it allows us to forgive others. When we abide in His love, it allows us to love others. Jesus is the object and the source of our unity. The final thing we see here is that unity is not an end in itself. Now, we might think that the natural way or the, the, to attain unity is by having an inward focus. Then let's just focus on being unified. Let's just focus on everyone being friends. Be great to come to church and we know everyone's name and they know us. They know our stories. That's fantastic. But it doesn't, it's not supposed to end with us. The unity that Jesus desires for his followers is a unity that communicates something to the watching world. So I know I've read these verses a couple times already, but verse 21 again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Right? Or verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And we know back earlier in the Gospel of John, we're familiar with this verse, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what Jesus is saying here. Unity in the church is what makes the gospel visible to other people. Right? So sometimes you can't see it. So it would be like if I had a balloon up here this morning and I was just to rub it vigorously on the front of my shirt... And then I were to hold it above my head. The little bit of hair that I still have would be drawn. It would stand up at attention. It would reach for that balloon, right? Now, you can't actually see the static electricity, but you can see its effect. And that's what unity does as well. It makes the gospel visible to others. It's an observable phenomenon. People see it and they say, I don't know what it is about these people, but there's something there, and that draws me to Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus prays these words. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus has given his glory or entrusted his glory to us, his followers. Now, that word glory has been used a number of times in John's gospel. We encountered it before. We encountered it the very first time back in chapter 1. In Jesus' incarnation, when it says, We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We met the word again in chapter 2, when Jesus changed water into wine. And Jesus summarized, or John summarizes that act like this. He says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So we see the glory of Jesus in his incarnation. We see the glory of Jesus in the miracles or the signs that he did. But now what he says is, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. That the world might believe. 
So where is this glory? Where is the glory that Jesus gave to the church, to his followers? And you'll have to forgive me. But when I look out here today, I don't see a lot of glory. I don't mean that in a negative way. What I mean is, you know, you're just average people, right? When I look at this building, I don't see a lot of glory in it. I mean, I've been to some church buildings, you know, the kind where you take tour. There's a tour guide that walks you through and you take pictures and it's just so glorious. But in actual fact, the glory that's here this morning is greater than that. The glory that's here today is in the unity of God's people. The glory is not in the stained glass. It's not in the high ceilings. It's not in the detailed woodwork. The glory is in the unity that we share in Christ. So we say as a church that our mission, the mission of Crossroads Church, is to know Jesus and to make him known. And how do we make him known? Well, one of the ways we make him known is that we make the gospel visible by the unity that we share. It's a beautiful thing, a testimony to the watching world. Now, we're going to move into a time of communion, and I want to just focus on something a little bit different in our, in our time celebrating the Lord's Supper together. I want to just read for you some verses in 1 Corinthians, both in chapter 10 and in chapter 11 as we do this, as a reminder that... The communion that we celebrate, we celebrate together as a church. It is a demonstration of our unity. Here's what it says in chapter 10. Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, right? The picture is that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are declaring our unity, that though we're vastly different people, different backgrounds, different ages, stages, ethnicities, all of that, we are one in Christ. We're unified in Christ, and we're unified around the bread that we take and the cup that we drink from. In chapter 11, he goes on to say, In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What Paul is saying there is there is a fundamental problem that existed in the church in Corinth, and it was a problem of unity. And the way to get to that unity was to to worship the same to focus on the same object, to focus on Jesus, how he has broken down that wall of hostility and he has made we who are many one body. That's us this morning. We're one body. It might be that there's you know, stuff even in our own church or people in our own church you've got conflict with or you can't seem to forgive or you've got resentment towards. You need to lay all of that aside. When we come to the table, we come as one body, as his united people in Christ. So I'm going to pray. 
you can come forward, get the cup and the bread, and then we'll partake together as a display of that unity at the end. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus, for the power that exists because of what he's done and because of the fact that through the Spirit, uh, he indwells us. And so, Lord, we pray now as we celebrate in remembrance of what Jesus did, we pray that this would be just a reminder that we are one church together, one body made up of lots of different parts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.